Hey everybody, it's Matt Powers. I'm a seed saver, gardener, teacher, and family guy. And I'm teaching people all over the world how to live more regeneratively so that they can have that abundant future that we all want. And today we're talking about what, what's holding you back? Is it poor soils? Are poor soils holding you back? Is your site the kind of site that is a nightmare? <laughs> you look out and you're like, oh my word, it looks like a moonscape. Is that what's going on? Or do you have a site that was just beaten down by agriculture or overgrazing or something like that? Or maybe they cleared it, bulldozed it, and tamped it down for a building site, and now it's, that's where you're growing. There's all these different situations, and we're going to dive into it right now. So my story is that I started working with decomposed granite in Central Valley, California. It was like 140 degree soils, two inches deep. So, I mean, it was crazy hot and it was so hot. It basically was sterilizing itself every single year in that heat. It's comparable to the Middle East and the, and, and the temperatures we were reaching in the Central Valley of California. And so I was right above Fresno in the foothills right there. And people were saying you can't garden without tons of expensive input shade. And, and while that is true, you know, full sun doesn't mean really full sun in Central Valley <laughs> because it's burning. It is so intense. So I figured out, though, how to turn decomposed granite into rich soil. And it, some places it took only months doing what I did. And then some places it took years because it was further away from where I was preparing and living. And so it just I, I didn't bring all the materials out there to that area. Like the stuff that was next to my house in my zone one, I composted that stuff 10 to 12 times as much per season as anywhere else. So the transition happened there very fast. Also, you know, that's where I was dealing with, you know, my compost, my kitchen waste. You know, I was generating compost there. And so I would just, it would be easy to lay it down in huge amounts. And then also I'm like, it's close to my house, it's protected. So I'm going to invest by adding more compost in my zone one rather than off in my zone four. So in my zone four, I had this hill that took years to change, but when it changed, it was so dramatic. It was, I mean, they literally had to bring a backhoe in to plant trees before I got there. They planted the trees in, and the trees did awful because the soils were so bulletproof that whenever it rained, it filled up that hole underground and, this, and the plant just sat in that water and it went anaerobic. And so I applied Masanuba Fukuoka's technique in that area so that it would be minimal um, work on my, on my end. It would be low maintenance. It would really take off. The clover would be the agent of the most change, clover and daikon. And, and it was kind of like rampant. Um, and with clover, I mean, obviously you're not gonna do garden beds. It was, it was a clover set up so that I could interplant some hardy annuals, but mostly a perennial system. So that's why it was that. But close to my house, I focused on compost, compost tea. I created swales. I aerated very deep. And what happened was when I did inoculate with this stuff, this compost tea and compost, it just caused the color change to go so deep because it could flow deep because I had loosened it. I mean, there's all these different reasons. But let's back up and we'll, we'll come back to that, but let's back up and let's talk about what soil is. Because soil, when we talk about it, we primarily talk about the clay, sand, and silk components of it. And clay is really good, you know, it's high in minerals, it's excellent 
for bonding things. It retains water really well. And then, you know, sand is really great because it's well draining. You know, it's easy to inoculate. Things will travel down far and it accepts water readily. And then silt, you know, is really easy to work with. It makes rich and fertile soils really easily, but clay can repel water and also can resist aeration and movement. It can be like a giant block of clay. <laughs> and it's like, what do you do with this? You know, a lot of plants hate that. Uh, and then sand, you know, can be completely devoid of organic matter. It can be lacking in life and it can also easily move. So suddenly your sand dune shifted over here and your trees are buried and, you know, <laughs> you know, it can, it can also be highly alkaline. So your, your, your garden plants or, or your, your fungal dominant, you know, perennials might hate it. So there, there, there are drawbacks and advantages to each of these. And that's why they're always like, oh, you need a perfect, you know, blend of 30, 30, 33% of each, you know, it's gotta be perfect, right? The matrix. But the reality is we got the soil we got and we can change it. We actually can take pure sand and if we add enough organic matter and soil life, we can make very convincing, rich soil. It has the structure, because the fungi, it has the structure of loam. And it'll trick, uh, you know, uh, it'll trick people who, who, who check it out. They're like, wow, this soil is amazing. It must be a perfect balance of the, and, and it tricks them. Uh, Elaine Ingham famously talks about uh, fooling other soil scientists with this. Um, so it is possible. And what it takes is it takes organic matter and soil life. So how is that possible? Um, if it's just organic matter and soil life, you know, can I do this? Yes, the answer is you can do it, okay? So we need to grow and chop and drop the plants that accumulate the nutrients and create the biomass that we need to feed your soil. And we need to do this so it accomplishes our goals. So if you're doing it all and it's all this pine mulch from your site and, and it's really high in tannins and you know, you're, you, it's not gonna be really calibrated to doing you know, a garden with. You're gonna have to bring in other things to chill it out. <laughs> you're gonna have to inoculate that soil with things to eat up those tannins perhaps. You're gonna have to process it further, bring in other resources. Um, so we need to be aware of where we're headed, not just, you know, of, of what we're talking about. It's, it's gotta be dialed in. So what can we grow? Because obviously we can get compost. Obviously we can buy these expensive inputs that are dialed in specifically for this thing, but we don't really need to. You can do what I did, which is I grew the change and then the compost I had was made from animal manure and bedding from my animals and then chop and drop. So what you know, kind of chop and drop are we talking about? Because I, I said, you know, you need things that are actually accumulating what you want for your goals and the soil. That you know, overlap, right? The, you know, the Venn diagram, it's that overlap that we want. So the number one thing I would say that might surprise you is C4 grasses. No, not C4 like the explosive from all those 90s movies, <laughs> but C4 as in carbon, as in sequestering tons of carbon. So these grasses came about when there was excess carbon in the environment and they adapted to take in carbon at such a high rate that they ended up creating these amazing, awesome sugars, creating huge amounts of biomass. 
So what am I talking about? What are these grasses? Well, think about, you know, what sugary things are awesome. Well, well, sugar cane, that's a C4 grass. Corn, that's a C4 grass. Sorghum, you might not know that one, but it's going to be coming out in Permaculture Magazine North America in the next issue. I got an article on it they should check out. So C4 grasses create, you know, I mean, the corn is over 95% made out of air. It's taking the CO2 out of the air, breaking it, releasing all that oxygen, and then sequestering that carbon in the soil and in its body. You know, it embodies it. And so when we chop that down, when we burn it, or when we turn it into ethanol and then burn it, when we don't return it to the soil, when we don't sequester that carbon, we're doing a huge disservice to both like the, the, the all the different, you know, trophic levels of life involved, but just to ourselves, to the planet at large. Um, and so, and those poor farmers, I mean, we should be subsidizing composting for those farmers so that they can have the best soil so that we can have the best food. All right, so um, legumes. Yeah, everyone knows about cover crops. We know about nitrogen fixing. There's other plants other than legumes that fix nitrogen too. So we need to have these in our system. You know, they create tons of biomass too. Cowpeas are superb for this. So cowpeas have been measured with growing with corn and they're like the best companion plant because they generate all this biomass, they shade the ground, protect the ground, and then they're also generating huge amounts of nitrogen. And they're doing this, you know, growing in the summer all alongside with the corn. They're not a, a winter crop. So you, you can be fixing nitrogen during the summer, not just during the winter or the fall or the early spring. So legumes are amazing. Cowpeas do, do you know, don't, don't, you know, leave them behind. Cowpeas will radically change a system. I swear by cowpeas. Cowpeas, I put everywhere. They're part of my system of establishment. So cowpeas <laughs> for high carbon and nitrogen. And then we have probably a little bit unexpected, right? We have mustard. So you're probably like mustard, the spicy, like, Winter green mustard? Yeah, mustard. Why? Well, mustard actually fixes tons of phosphorus. Um, and it also, I mean, it, it, all right, so it's part of the secession. So from going to alkaline to fungal, we first pass through brassicas and we first pass through actinobacterial dominant. And these soils, they're like actinobacteria acts much like fungi does where it's breaking down things and making them more bioavailable. And so this is just a step in the succession. So I really like using this as a part of introduction to, to, to establishing a site. So all these hardy, you know, pioneer species that are accumulating certain nutrients, or creating biomass, creating food, they're making serious change. So mustard for phosphorus and potassium. And then daikon radishes. You might not know this, but daikon radishes are incredible. They're actually being sold and trademarked and like patented um, for, for very specific um, properties. And that's because daikon radishes are like tillage. They go and they, they're not gonna mess up the layers. They're like, they're like tillage, but without the inversion of the soil. So they're like no-till tilling. They go down and you can pull them out and then you have this easy access to deepen the soil. They're aerating the soil, they're allowing air into there, and then they can break down in place and compost in place and then provide nutrients really deep. 
And what kind of nutrients are these? Well, actually, nitrogen. They're really good at scavenging and gathering nitrogen that's loose in the soil. And then they also, they do tons of phosphorus, just like the, you know, the mustard. They're gathering tons of phosphorus, so they're being marketed for this purpose and used as an amazing new cover crop that's, you know, just becoming really popular right now. And they're, of course, edible and delicious and awesome. So daikon radishes, something to not look over. And it's also part of Fukuoka's methodology, so check that out. All right, now, we talked about the summer legumes, but we want to do peas and fava beans. Why? Well, they're going to create tons of uh, nitrogen fixation. They're going to make it create tons of biomass. They're going to be your cover crop during the winter. And then they're also going to provide this opportunity where you can get food, but they're not going to, if you chop and drop them in place, even if you leave all the seeds in place, for, for, for a lot of it, they're just going to decompose. So the seeds are so high in nitrogen that they'll just decompose. They won't, they won't stick through the season. That's why humans have always been going out there gathering it. So those larger legumes, um, they'll just break down in place and provide wonderful, you know, fertilization happening. So, so yeah, peas and fava beans. And, and the final reason is because they won't travel. You know, because it, it rots in place, it doesn't like spread and become out of control. It's so easy to manage, low maintenance. All right. And then here's a controversial one. All right, here we go. Comfrey. For a long time, there's been this talk about dynamic accumulators, which has been, you know, largely debunked because all plants are accumulating a spectrum of nutrients. And it depends, you know, on their circumstance of what they, they, they take in of what. But if you look at Duke's phytochemical, you know, the USDA testing, you know, that database, it really is revealing um, because comfrey, you know, it's not taking minerals in in some of these test sites. Some test sites, you know, according to Robert Kirk, they're taking in tons of lead. And so while it may be a really good at mineral accumulation in soils with high minerals, it's not necessarily like going deep and like mining it out of the soil. You know, the, the, the soil top six to eight inches is that's where the nutrients are. It's not deep water is deeper and things will tunnel to get water. Not as much to get nutrients. The nutrients are in the top. So comfrey though is very high in fiber and protein, which is nitrogen, right? Because protein needs nitrogen, you know, it needs it. it, it and so we, we, we need to understand that it's protein, it's fiber and it's mucopolysaccharides. So polysaccharides are really complex sugars and so it's these complex sugars. And so this is all going to take a lot of life to break down. There's a lot of nitrogen in there. So this is why we inoculate and use comfrey as a compost starter. This is why we make compost tea with, with comfrey a lot of times. So there's a lot there. There's a lot of variables too. So that's why it's so controversial. But that's why I, you know, I love it and I want to test it more and explore it more because it has all that variability of expression and possibility. So don't give up on comfrey, okay? Just because dynamic accumulators aren't exactly what we had hoped they would be. Good news is everything accumulates, right? <laughs> Everything's dynamic too because it'll respond to different, you know, situations. All right. Um... So, if you've got good soil, 
looking. It looks good. Like look, I was in Missouri. The soil was dark. It was really kind of like compact, wasn't very deep. But what was clear to me was that it was getting enough organic matter. But what was happening was it was being leached out, constantly eroded. And so what needed to happen was fungi and, and, and bacteria and soil life to trap those minerals that are coming through the rain, that, that are coming into the system, whether it's your manure or something else. And so it's really making sure you have a no-till system with a really good uh, soil food web that traps those minerals and you know, those nutrients that are coming into your system. So if you have soil that you think is good, you don't understand what's going on, it might be mineral deficiencies. So um, minerals are sometimes like a really key missing component. And you're like, but wait, I thought we can unlock anything. All the soils have all the things. Yes, that is absolutely true. But if, if, if your area has been just like stripped out, um, then, then, then what is there to break down? I mean, if you've just sand, you know, it may be, you know what I mean? And if it's just life that has to break it down, it might take a while. So if you're in a commercial setting or you're in a quick startup setting or you want to just get going, but do it in a regenerative way, there's hugely positive ways of bringing minerals onto your site and then relieving the stress on other biomes. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about seaweed and kelp, right? Have you heard about this? So when you're, when all the mountains, you know, they're eroding and the soils are eroding, everything's eroding from natural erosion. And then we add on all the agricultural stuff, the inputs, all this stuff that's flowing off the land. The plants are soaking that up and trying to take to fight the eutrophication, the, the overabundance of nutrients in the, in the water. And these plants, when they're at peak, their peak sequestration of carbon, peak, you know, they're about to die. Instead of putting it back and keeping all those excess nutrients in that system, we can go in there right when it's perfectly ripe and, and trim it. This is what Dan Marquez, Farmer C, is doing. Trim it and then bring it onto land and reintroduce it into the soil, taking back what was eroded. So, and what happens when, when the soil life has minerals? It explodes. So the soil life needs the minerals to do the work that it needs to do at the higher level. So starting at the basic end and being like, well, the soil life will catch up eventually. You know, we can move faster. We can be wiser and we can help more people and more life. So minerals. Um, and, and yeah, they do fish emulsion too. Um, so you might need to bring on some machines. What if you're on a site that's just crazy? I mean, like you can't get your pitchfork into it to even do, do a little bit of that. You might need to have a tractor pass through with a ripper. You might need a key line plow it so that you're subsoil plowing it so that you're breaking it up so that the aeration can begin so that the change can truly begin. You might, you know, be on a farm scale and you might need to be planting the trees, you know, with machines and doing all these things, but it will make an incredible difference in that small amount of gasoline and fuel that you're using, you know, could be easily replaced with alternative energy. And then you could do that and then you could have a system that's not causing. You could be part of that system. You could be using our advantages to, to create a huge advantage, a centropic change in the system around you. All right. 
And then animals. Do you know that sometimes machines and even doing things by hand by master gardeners and master permaculturists can't do what animals do? Animals, they're sophisticated. They are masters at following their instincts and doing what nature needs them to do in their role. So you might need to bring in animals to provide that animal pressure to dive in there and you know, and, and make a mud wallow so you can have a pond there, a small natural pond, or maybe maybe you have those those cows come in there and then they, they really work that area and move on and holistically graze the whole site. And then it's this amazing changeover. It's, it's, it really depends. But animals can, you know, do amazing things. You may have to start with goats to clear back that brush. Then you may, you may need to follow in with sheep to take down those bigger grasses, then then you may then you can bring in those cows, then you can follow with chickens and then turkeys, and then you can either let it grow out and go again, or at that point you can plant in it. You can you know you can then set your contours and do your key line. And there's so many options, and it really makes a difference if you plan it out and figure out where those changes to your soil. Are going to happen, how you're going to do it, and have a plan, and then follow through. Because the reality is, you know, how fast this happens depends on how much attention you give to it. So just like at the beginning, that zone one right next to my house, where I could give it that extra compost, extra compost teeing, extra mulch constantly, that area was incredible. Within three months, I could put my whole arm in up to my shoulder down and it was the same color. I had generational farmers showing up at my house, paying me to show them and teach them how I did this. You know, it was amazing. I had uh, PBS show up and film my farm too. People couldn't believe that I was doing this in 140 degree soils, in areas without fences, with constant deer pressure, you know, crazy ground squirrel pressure, nuts. And I just had to learn how to live with them, how to work with them. <laughs> and, you know, and in an area where, you know, the decomposed granite was bulletproof, where we definitely, definitely had poor soils. So if you want it, you can get it. You just gotta put the work in and the planning in and follow through. So I recommend this year is the year that you start. Start today, pick those seeds out, figure out what your plan of action is gonna be, figure out how much seed you're gonna need, because you're gonna need a lot of cowpeas. I'm just telling you right now, you're gonna need a lot of cowpeas. You might wanna go check out, you know, places where you can buy it in bulk. Maybe call some, actually, I'm gonna give you a pro tip. You can actually, a lot of these seed catalogs, so you're like, oh, they don't offer bulk, call them. And they will be like, oh, well, what do you want? We can just whip it up, boom. We could just do it. It's easy, it really is. So I hope that you get excited, make a plan, and don't feel held back by poor soils because it's an opportunity for you to make them incredible and take an area that was lacking carbon, was lacking organic matter and make it something that is a sequestration pool that is constantly getting better, that is making your life better and making everyone's life around you better. So I hope this was instructive. 
I hope that you have a wonderful day. I'm Matt Powers. Grow abundantly, learn daily, and live regeneratively. And see you tomorrow, guys.